0: Amen. So this past week, I went to the doctor for my yearly checkup, and all was going well until he got to my cholesterol number. Uh, Three years ago, it was high at 242. Two years ago, I did battle royale against it, and it went down to 196, and I was pumping my fist in the doctor's office. I must have slacked off the last two years because the doctor's assessment is that my diet needs to change. My number is back up above 242. It's now at 246. And I'm looking at the doc and I'm saying, I think I eat pretty healthy. For breakfast this morning, it was oatmeal with blueberries and chopped walnuts. And for lunch, it was wild rice and squash. And it's as though he was looking over his glasses at me saying, yep, I've heard that before. And I'm saying no. And he goes, Nate, you got to cut out the cheese, too much dairy, probably creamy stuff and all that. His assessment at the end was that I needed to do better. The question that our text poses this morning could be this. What would be God's assessment of your relationship with him? If God were to be very personal with you and have you sit down in the office today and say, I've studied the numbers of your life this past year. I've, I've been watching you. I've been with you every moment of the way. And let me just land with a very plain assessment of where you've been. And to help us understand that, let me just limit his assessment to two words. Those words would be either belief, you've believed me, you've trusted me, you've had faith in me, or unbelief. You haven't trusted me, you haven't followed me, you haven't been faithful in me. This text draws that question out as we put ourselves into the passage this morning. The events in chapter 6 that we're going to study, just these six verses this morning, they stand in contrast to four stories that Mark has presented to us. The first story was at the end of chapter 4 where Jesus and his disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, it's nighttime, a storm whips up and the sea is all riled and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and the disciples out of fear of what's going on, they move to Jesus and ask him for help. Don't you care that we're dying right now? Jesus comes up and shows that he is the son of God, the one who delivers and calms the sea down. And even in response to that calm, see, the disciples are stunned, and he asks them, is your faith there? What you do notice is that they went to Jesus. The second story, Jesus arrives after having crossed the sea on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The boat skiffs up on the beach. He steps out onto the shore, and you remember, a demon-possessed man become, uh, starts sprinting down the beach at him, Some starts running down the beach at him. And this man throws himself down at Jesus' feet. He's demon-possessed. The demons say, what have you to do with us, son of the Most High God? They know who Jesus is. They believe who Jesus is. There's a display of Jesus' power where he casts the demons out of the man the townspeople come and they see this man that they've known about, who's been a maniac, wandering in the cemeteries, cutting himself, wrenching chains off of himself. They see this man sitting in his right mind, and they say to Jesus, "You have to leave. We can't have you around here." They rejected him. The man that's sitting there who's been healed of the demons, he says to Jesus, "Can I follow you? Can I go with you wherever you go?" Jesus says, no, it's better for you to stay here and tell other people about the mercy that you've received. You see faith in the life of that man. You see rejection or unbelief in the life of the crowd. Third story, a woman comes up behind Jesus. She's been hemorrhaging blood for the last 12 years, and she says, if I just touch his garment, Luke's gospel says, if I just touch the fringe of his garment, he doesn't even need to know But if I do that, I know that just by coming into contact with him, I'll be healed. So she comes up behind Jesus, probably behind his back, touches his garment there. And in faith, she's healed. Jesus turns around, and you remember that from last week. He turns around and says, who was the one who just touched me? Draws her out, and he says to her, your faith has made you well. And then there's Jairus the father who has had the daughter of 12 years old, and she's at the point of death here. And he comes to Jesus, and he believes that Jesus can make her well. You remember Jesus paused to deal with the woman who was bleeding, and in the meantime, his daughter dies, Jairus' daughter dies. Jesus overhears somebody who comes from Jairus's house. The messenger says, don't bother with the teacher, she's dead. And Jesus turns to Jairus and says, just believe, do not fear, only believe. And they go to the house and Jesus takes those three disciples into the house with them and Jairus and perhaps Jairus' wife, the girl's mom, and takes the girl by the hand and, and says, little girl, arise, wake up. And out of that you see Jairus demonstrating faith. We come to this text And we see something very opposite. We see the demonstration of unbelief. This morning, we are going to just work through our sermon with four questions. I'll give them to you as we go. The first question is simply this. What will hinder you from believing in Jesus? What will hinder you from believing in Jesus? Okay, so verse 1 Chapter 6, Jesus is going to his hometown, it says. His hometown is away from the Sea of Galilee. It's 25 miles. So, you know, you can think about from here to the south side of Holland. Jesus is walking that distance. He's traveled quite a ways. The town is Nazareth not to be confused with Bethlehem. Bethlehem was where he was born. You remember Herod was slaughtering the baby boys. They fled to Egypt, and when they came back, they land in this little town of Nazareth. Archaeology and historical records tell us that Nazareth was a small little village. Um, On the low end, maybe 200 people. On the high end, there may have been 500 people. You put a little village like that together of just maybe four or five hundred people, no cell phones, no mailmen delivering packages, everybody in that town is going to pretty much know one another. At least they'll know the families of everyone. A very small village in the sense that Jesus is just arriving there, my grandparents they lived in northern Illinois in a little farm town called Foreston, Illinois. Population, 1,446 people. And it seemed like every time we visited this little farm town, Grandma and Grandpa would take us to the diner or to the high school football game, and they just knew everybody in town. My grandpa would call these towns poke and plum towns. Maybe you've heard of it. It's almost like a dad joke. You poke your head around the corner and you're, Plum out of town. Somebody said it. Yeah. That's what Nazareth is. He's just, okay, it's gone. All these people know each other. And here's Jesus going back to this little town. In verse 2, it says he's arrived with his disciples, and it's becoming his custom to go to the synagogue and teach. And that's what he did. If we take Luke's gospel and combine Luke's gospel with what's happening here, we find out that he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Opens up the scrolls. Luke 4 tells us that he's reading from Isaiah. And he reads this, Luke 4, 17 to 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Keep in mind, this is a quotation from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Such a heartwarming passage from the book of Isaiah to those who are oppressed. And those people in that synagogue that morning would have said, yes, that resonates with us. We certainly want our deliverer, our Messiah to come and set us free to give us our liberty. But then Jesus turned a corner Luke 4, verse 21, Jesus says this Today, this scripture has been fulfill, fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, what? Meaning that Jesus is the one whom Isaiah was prophesying about. And all of a sudden, it's as though the folks in Nazareth start getting a little fidgety with this guy whom they've known since he was a little child. Jesus, we've heard about your teaching ministry. We've heard like things are echoing around the Sea of Galilee and it's come all the way to this podunk village up here against the rocks in Nazareth. We hear that you're quite the teacher. But today you just said, This scripture is fulfilled in me. Little Jesus who grew up here in Nazareth, you're saying you're the deliverer? No way. We can't can't accept that. And so it caused them to push in a little bit further with questions. Questions that express their knowledge up to this point. If God's word in Isaiah is coming true, Jesus, you're telling us that our hometown boy is going to be the Savior, is going to be the Messiah, is going to be Deliverer? And so they start peppering questions, and if you look at these questions, they are questions that are based or rooted in their knowledge, their experience. So the first question is simply this, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom that's been given to him? By that, Jesus had picked up the identity of being a teacher possibly even a rabbi but in the rabbi tradition you just didn't pop up on the scene and declare yourself to be a rabbi in Jewish custom. In Jewish culture you had to be trained up by a rabbi and then you had the stamp of approval from that rabbi upon your life and so with this question they are starting to undermine the authority of Jesus by asking, who was the one who put the stamp of approval on your life? Where did you get these things from? We know you, Jesus. You say you're the deliverer. Nobody's put that stamp of approval on you. Third question is simply this. How are such mighty works done by his hand? Again, news would have traveled. Maybe even the disciples who were with Jesus coming into Jerusalem that day might be bumping elbows and saying, hey, your hometown boy, you should have seen what he did on the other side of the sea with this demon-possessed man. You should have seen what he just did a few days ago raising this girl from the dead. I think Mark wants us to just hear the questions coming through as skeptical questions. I was online, I don't know, several years ago, and I came across this church that is um, very uh, not like us. I'll just say it that way. And uh, one of the pastors stood up in front and was giving a report of their missions trip that they had been to. And I think it was somewhere in the, in the far east. And I was already skeptical about this service that I was watching. And the pastor got up and said, well, we had this many healings and we saw several people be raised from the dead. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. I mean, you can tell me and I can maybe hear these words, but I'm looking at you, and I'm saying, no, you're just an ordinary man. And that's how we would respond, right? If we heard somebody coming up here this morning saying that, we'd say, no, no. That's the Nazarenes. That's the people of Nazareth here. No, 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 Jesus. You, we hear about it, but not quite. Verse 3, the questions keep coming. Is not this actually the carpenter? Jesus' hands were no not for raising little girls from the dead, but for cutting stone out of the hills there in Nazareth, masonry kind of work, using his tools to work with wood and make cabinets and doors for people's houses. He was a tradesman. He was a blue-collar individual, not a miracle worker. The questions keep coming. The fifth question Is he not the son of Mary? And at first glance, this seems like a harmless question. Um, But actually, in Jewish genealogies, do you remember, were kids known by their fathers or by their mothers? By their fathers. Unless that is, we don't know who the father is. Unless mom had kind of a... Shady reputation from the past. Unless Jesus here is being accused of being an illegitimate child, which the religious leaders accuse him of in John chapter 8. He had grown up with this reputation. They had denied the virgin birth. They assumed that Mary had carried on a secret affair, maybe with Joseph, maybe with someone else, and Jesus was the outcome. Question number six, aren't his brothers James? You know, James was the head of the church, author of James. Joseph and Judas, this is probably Jude, who wrote the book of Jude right before Revelation. And Simon, are not his sisters here with us? Just a real quick aside here. You can see that Jesus had brothers and sisters. The theory of Mary's perpetual virginity Is just unbiblical here. But what's the point of their comment? What's the point of them saying, isn't this Jesus who's got his brothers and sisters here? I think it would be like this. You've read books or you have seen movies, um, particularly about black people who have faced challenges. At some point in the story, the black person faces the unbelief from those of where he came from. So, for example, he's getting started with his sports or with his idea or with his political career. And he goes back to where he came from. And there are some who are cheering him or her on. But then there are others that are there from the hometown. You see this in the stories. Maybe the, the group of thugs or those in the ghetto, who come up and challenge the individual and they say, we know who you are. You're one of us. You came from this place. Quit thinking like you're all high and mighty. That's what's going on with these questions from the people of Nazareth. You're from Nazareth. We know your family. That's what we see from you. You can't be this deliverer that Isaiah is talking about here. Also, you think about his family being there. Chapter 3, verse 21. We had read this earlier where Jesus' family journeyed to him and tried to take him captive, basically, and lead him back home, saying, He's out of his mind. All kinds of doubt and skepticism. So the question is what kept them from believing? As you see these questions, they are questions that are rooted in their own experience. They are questions that are rooted in their own knowledge of what they would have seen and perceived Jesus to be while he was growing up. And as a result, what does it say at the end of verse 3? They took offense at him. It's the word for scandal. They would not accept his claims. This guy is a scandal to us. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 2.8 where it says a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's who Jesus is. So the builder would go down to a quarry search for the perfect cornerstone to use for the building that was going to be erected. And there were some stones that would have splits in them, or some stones that would be nicked off at the corner, or the masons wouldn't have cut it just right. And so the builder would come to that stone and say, no, this one won't work for me. This one won't fit. It's going to be an offense to the building that needs to be built up on it. And so they would reject it. And that's the same word that Mark is using right here. Here's the hometown people, his friends, those whom he would have known from growing up. And they're looking at him and they're basically saying, you're a scandal, you're an offense to us. And so we're going to give you that stiff arm and keep you at bay. When you think about this, again, you have to realize that they are leaning into their own understanding. They are leaning into their own knowledge, the limits of their knowledge. And you think about that verse from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, where Solomon says to his son, here's the way forward for a wise man. You trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own knowledge as being authoritative for your Christian life. The question is, do we have understanding that we should use? Has God given us the capacity to know things that we should apply? Or do we just discard it all and say, no, 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 I don't need any facts. Like, this whole faith thing is just a blind thing. Don't confuse me with any of the Bible. I'm just going to accept whatever you say. I'm I'm taking it blindly. No. God has given us knowledge. He's given us the capacity to know. He's given us his word. And so we go through the word and we study it. and We say, oh, that is the knowledge that I'm supposed to have. But do we have limits to our own human understanding? Do we have limits on our own ability to know and comprehend things? And the answer is yes, we do. Let me give you an example. Mark George and I were talking this past week about the, the landscaping and the water and all that stuff. And uh, we were talking about a well that's tapped somewhere over here. This kind of doesn't make sense to me. My limits of understanding come to an end. Do you realize that about 17 feet underneath us, there's a whole lot of water? A lot of water. So much water that people put wells down there, and water rushes into those wells, and then they use a pump to pump that water up 17 feet and, you know, do the sprinkling and everything. I would think that if there's water under here that the dry soil on top of it would start to erode and fall down into it, and a a building with a slab that we're all sitting on, weighing a few million pounds, which would never float in the ocean, concrete down to the bottom, would push us right down into the water table and we'd be in the swamp. For me that doesn't make sense, but here's Jim, he's a civil engineer, he gets it. That makes sense to him, I think. And to some of you, it makes sense. But my limits of understanding, I come to an end. And I came here this morning because I just, I believe that this will hold me up here. And we won't sink. You think about the ear? I mean, this blows my mind. You're hearing sound waves that are going out over the air from these speakers here. And those sound waves travel into this cone here, into that canal, hits a little vibrating sheet... And then causes some bones to, to flutter in there that are connected to a little, little nerve that's surrounded with a sheath on it. And that nerve somehow travels to the brain and tells you that I just said it tells you that I just said it tells you. You know, you're hearing that and comprehending a thought and you, you know. Do you understand how it works? No. Do you believe that it works? Yeah. You can't lean on your own understanding. When it comes to what God tells us in his word, what Jesus presents to us, there are limits that each one of us have. And some of you might have limits that go a little bit further. And you say, I can understand that. And some of you say, "I can't. I can't wrap my hands around it. But does that mean you reject it based on your limits of knowledge? Because that's what the people of Nazareth are doing here. Jesus has come in, he's read from the book of Isaiah, he has said, I am the deliverer, this is fulfilled in me today, will you believe it? And they're saying, no, our limits of understanding point to you as our hometown boy, you can't be a savior. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, meaning there are things that we can't understand, we don't get it, we won't get it. But the things that are revealed to us in God's word, they belong to us and our children forever. For what purpose? That we might do all of the words of this law. That we might walk in these words. David says this about knowledge in Psalm 139, verse 6. Talking about the bigness of God, the greatness of what he's done. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There are going to be things presented about God, about Jesus, about the gospel that you come to and you just say, I don't understand how that can be true. That's where the people of Nazareth are. And because they can't get their mind around it, they say, I reject it. So on Thursday night, I was sitting in a chair next to Chris and um, we were reading our books. And I feel a little something on my hand, and I look down, and it is this, the tiniest of little bugs that's crawling on my hand right there. And I watched it for a moment. I'm easily amused. And <laughs> it crawled up my hand and decided to turn around and go back down my hand. And it made a couple jig, you know jogs on my hand, uh, zigzags. And I thought to myself, should I go throw that thing outside and spare it? I mean, it was the smallest. Don't feel bad for this thing. It's just a little tiny bug. <laughs> tiny bug. And I decided, no, I'm not going to throw it outside. So my bookmark was just a little receipt. And I grabbed the receipt, and I just, and that's the end of the bug in my receipt. And then I turned to Chris, and I said, do you think that bug, Knows that it just died? Did it know when it was dying? I'm I'm dying right now. I should have taken out a life insurance policy for my (laughs) bug. Of course not. Like, that bug would be one little part of the size of your brain. And if we were to look at that bug and say, that bug had some sort of... Maybe we can use the word knowledge. I watched it turn around. It turned around for a reason. There was something going on in its bug brain. And it moved back and forth. But here's this bug, and I'm talking to Chris, and I'm reading this book, and it can't understand a thing that we understand. It can't scratch the surface. I mean, it would be futile in trying to help this bug truly understand. And so when God comes to us and he says, hey, you need to surrender. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed have been given to you so that you might walk in them, so that you might obey them. Such knowledge is too high for me. I cannot attain it. We come to God and you have to realize that there are things about God that you will never be able to wrap your arms around in terms of knowledge. But does that mean then that you reject God or that you believe him? In all of this, Jesus is walking into his hometown and facing a group of people who've dismissed him out of unbelief. Their knowledge is informed by the past. They have the word of God being open to them. And instead of receiving the Bible in faith, they dismiss it due to what is now the authority of their limited knowledge. They're living in unbelief. So how does Jesus respond? And we'll move a little more quickly through these next three questions. What is Jesus' response to a life that's characterized by unbelief? This is point number two. Some people would say, if you reject me, I'll reject you. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. Jesus responds just simply in the text. Let's just walk through the three things that he does. Verse 4, he gives them a proverb. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, meaning a prophet is honorable, receives honor, with this exception, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. There's that line where you you really feel the punch at the end where he can say his household has rejected him. Everywhere else that Jesus has been, with the exception of the religious leaders, the crowds have been flocking to him, showing forms of honor, but Jesus shoots straight with them and says to them, you are not honoring me. So he gives them this proverb. But what's interesting is verse 5 to me. Verse 5 says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. In comparison to what God Would have done, he didn't do. It's interesting how the phrase is here, that he could do no mighty work there. Like a very literal translation from the Greek would be, he was powerless to do anything powerful there. And how do you make sense of that phrase? He was powerless to do anything powerful there. Here's how one commentator explains it. And I think he summarizes it well. He says, The lack of miracles is not due to Jesus' lack of power. Did Jesus all of a sudden get drained out into like a puddle? No power at all? No. Rather, it was because he was not free to exercise his power in the present situation in Nazareth due to the unbelief of the townspeople. Jesus' miracles were not theatrical performances, but demonstrate the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. And to enter into the kingdom of God and experience its power, however, one must repent and believe. So here is Jesus saying, I'm here and I'm willing to bring the power and the evidence of the kingdom of God into this little podunk village here in front of you. But what is needed for people to receive the kingdom of God, the authority of God in their life? What's needed is repentance from sin. This is the way I used to live. I wasn't looking for Jesus' authority in my life for the kingdom of God, and now faith. So I repent from where I was going, and now I have a new life where I'm laying hold of Jesus, laying hold of him in faith. And so what's sad, though, is that people had the opportunity to see the power of God right in front of them, but because of their unbelief, they wouldn't see it. If you want to see the power of God at work in your life, and I'm not talking about raising people from the dead and healing your leprosy. I'm talking about the way that God works in our hearts and in our lives and meets us where we are. You have to draw near to him in faith. And if you would step back and say, this has been a pretty like, unexciting year in terms of my relationship with God. Sometimes I wonder, is he even around? Could it be that God has come into your little village and he is in your synagogue, he is in your life, but you have just been responding saying, no, 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 I got this on my own. I'm not going to proceed in repentance and in faith. Instead, I'm just going to walk the path that I'm most comfortable with. I'm going to walk according to my knowledge. I think sometimes Christians wish that they could see more of God at work in their life, but they're willing or not willing, I'm sorry, not willing to step out in faith and follow Jesus. Why would God help us and experience power in our lives and strength in our lives if we're not needing the strength to follow him? And that's what happens so many times. I just don't want to follow him His strength is for us to follow him, not for us to get better in ourselves. In verse 5, it says that he did lay hands on a few people and heal them. I just can't help but wonder if he did this because, hey, I'm not going to leave you without anything. I'll leave this as a little sign and a testimony. Verse 6 says that he marveled at their unbelief, and then he left and went about among the other villages teaching. Okay, not here, I'll go somewhere else. I think about that passage from Revelation chapter 3. I didn't put it up on the screen. But where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And I think that that's for Christians in particular. I think it can be applied for non-Christians. But I think it's for Christians in particular where Jesus is saying, "Like I'm willing to come into your life and have fellowship with you. I'm willing to come in and show you more of who I am, more strength. But it's as though you don't want fellowship with me. You won't follow me. One author said it this way, the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us and only a carpenter, the son of Mary. It's not God's fault. So here are some questions, two questions that we now press into with application, question number three. If we're saying it's not knowledge, then what is it? Here's the question, what is belief? What is faith? He was marveling at their unbelief and that's what we could say in so many words kept them from seeing the mighty works of Jesus. So then what is faith? What is belief? Let's let us, let's let the Bible lead us through this and um, we're going to leave Mark now and go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Beware of unbelief So the idea is press into belief this week. What is belief? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith, or belief, it's the same word. Trust would be another word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith, now means that I am believing in something that is not seen. And particularly here in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is starting with, what's not seen or who's not seen? It's God. Biblical faith means I believe in God as he describes himself in the Bible, even though he is an unseen reality to us. I can't physically see God this morning. None of us can. And he says this, that it is faith is the conviction of things not seen. Um, the certainty. It's not just this whimsical hope. It's this, this confidence or this hope, this, this certainty that God is there. But biblical faith doesn't stop there. We believe that God exists. We believe in the unseen reality of God this morning and even his presence with us right now. But it doesn't stop there it goes on in chapter 11 and let me just round it out and i'll I'll show you here biblical faith means that i believe that god exists and what he says is true and best we kind of keep coming back to that don't we biblical faith means that i believe that god exists and what he says now is true and best and i do it i accept it so here's how the author of hebrews unpacks this he says here's faith here's god you must believe that he exists. And then he leads into examples of people here in chapter 11 who say, yes, I believe in God and I believe that what he says is true and best and I just don't hear it, but I'm going to walk in it. So here are some really hard things that happened. There was Noah who was warned by God. God's word to Noah. Flood is coming. What do you need to do? You need to build an ark. Well, that's Cray-cray. But I believe that you exist, and I believe that what you say is true and best, and my knowledge is not going to be ultimate. I'm going to lean into you, God. And so, out of faith, Noah built an ark. Here's Abraham. He believes that God exists, step one, but his faith did not stop there. God comes to him and makes him, gives him a promise. And he leads him out of that place where he was, And again, knowledge would say, this is the safest place to be. This is the right place for me to be. But God, or Abraham hears God's word, and he says, okay, I will follow you. And you go down through the heroes of faith in chapter 11, and they're believing that God exists, and God is calling them to something, and they don't stop at their own experience or their own limits of knowledge. They say, okay, what you say is true. I will follow you in that. And so this morning, one question that we could ask very simply here is, are you a believer? Like, does faith characterize your life? God's brought you into the office. He sat you down. He's like, I gotta, I'm going to make an assessment here. Would his assessment be to you that you are characterized by belief or faith in him? If you're a non-Christian John 3.16 is just a place for you to begin. Remember those words, repentance and faith, earlier? Summed up in John 3.16 where God says, God loved the world in this way. How did he love the world in this way? That he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A relationship with God and faith in God begins by seeing that God has given his son Jesus because of our sin and those who place their faith, who trust him as their savior, as their deliverer from their sin will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the beginning of this road of faith, this walk of faith. But it doesn't stop there. Faith, we continue going in belief and we have God's word that's a A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We say, okay, God, I believe you here. I believe you here. I believe you here. And so he calls us to steps of obedience in our lives. And every sin is actually an act of unbelief along the way. Saying, God, I don't trust your word because I just feel like this is better. Belief accepts the word of God as God's word to us. And in Surrender of the Heart, we say, I will obey. Question number four. Is it possible for me to grow my faith? Because I'm feeling like it's just a little bit on the low scale some days. I feel like I want it to grow. Is it possible for me to grow my faith? Well, it's kind of a trick question. Do we grow our faith? Like, is there something that we can hook up like an air compressor and just plug it in and flip the switch and blow up our faith? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the, here it is, word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it was, really is, the word of God. Now, look what's happening here. The word of God is at work in you as, and notice how he describes him, believers. What is building their, what is working in them, what is growing them? It's the word of God over and over again. And then you see Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So is it possible for me to grow my faith? Well, maybe a better way is to say this. I can enter into this process, and what happens is I submit myself to God's word. I keep coming back to God's word. I trust God's word. Over and over again, I look at God's word, and I say, oh, this is how I'm supposed to respond right now. This is how my marriage is supposed to look. This is how my heart is supposed to be. These are the steps that I'm supposed to take in my relationship with him. This is how I'm supposed to act towards other Christian brothers and sisters. And it's not just knowledge. Faith says, okay, I will. I do it. In conclusion, I want us to close with just thinking about the kindness of God. Jesus went to Nazareth, and he shared the truth with his family and friends. God has been extremely kind to each one of us who are living 2,000 years later. Kind in what way? He has spoken to us through his word. And in his sovereignty, he has preserved his word for us. And so when you think about the sins of mankind, when you think about the sins of Christians even throughout the centuries, God could have just said, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to let my word fizzle out so that they won't hear it or see it anymore. And left us helpless and hopeless. But that's not what God did. In his kindness... Like Jesus who went to Nazareth and gave them an opportunity to hear the word, God has come to us over and over again. Where? Through his word. And he has preserved his word for us to read it. He's preserved his word even right now so that it can be opened up on a Sunday morning so that it can be preached from and the Spirit can use it in each one of our lives. This is the kindness of God right now that we have his word and we can hear it. He's preserved it. So that you might take it home this week and open it up and say, I want my rest to be in God. I need to hear from God. I want my life to follow God. I'm going to read God's word. He's given us his word so that we might receive it and walk by faith in him. So the question in the office is this. We're not going to focus on what happened this last year. We're going to focus on what happens today and this week in this coming year. Will you walk by faith? Will you? If so, here are the marching orders. You surrender your limitations and you cling to God's word. That's it. Surrender your limitations and you cling to God's word this week. Let's pray.